Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 10. We're coming to the end of that middle section of the book. This is the second last chapter in the lengthy indictment that God levels against Israel for all their sin and apostasy. In the opening verses, the agricultural imagery of the second half of chapter 9 is extended and developed. In chapter 9, Israel was likened to a cluster of grapes discovered in the wilderness. God found this small struggling vine just barely eking out an existence in its dry and waterless surroundings. He had pity on the vine, and he transplanted it to a more rich and favorable environment. Now, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He is well provided for. He has everything he could ever ask for, want, or imagine. But contrary to expectations, he has not turned in gratitude toward God. That's the basic theme being developed in chapter 10. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The opening sentence in Calvin's Institutes reads as follows. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So Calvin is saying there, we're really reading the Bible looking for two things, knowledge about God and knowledge about ourselves. The book of Hosea, of course, is an absolute treasure trove of insights into the knowledge of God. It's filled with fascinating similes and depictions of God. God is like a cuckolded husband. God is like a father who adopts children of whoredom. God is like a moth who eats away at everything we lean on instead of him. God is like a shepherd, a teacher, a lion, and a bear. The book is filled with fascinating insights into the character and nature of God. But it also has some very interesting things to say about human beings. And some of that is also communicated via metaphor and simile. Here, we are told that Israel is like a luxuriant vine that produces rich fruit, but who has forgotten the one who made their flourishing possible. Remember, they were grapes in the wilderness in the last chapter. They were barely getting on, but God redeemed them. He lifted them up out of slavery and planted them in a land flowing with milk and honey. God did that, but Israel has forgotten. And that's what we're learning here. People forget, and prosperity hastens the process. The richer you are, the faster you forget the blessings and grace of God in your life. And of course, God warned Israel that this could happen. Deuteronomy 8, 7 and following says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks 
of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Closed quote. So Hosea here is just connecting the dots. He's just a faithful reader of Holy Scripture. He's saying, in the Bible, the Lord warned us not to do this, but here we are doing this. Therefore, we can expect to experience the consequences that the Lord said would accompany the decisions that we're making today. That's how most of the minor prophets function. They almost sound like constitutional lawyers prosecuting wayward and rebellious people. So notice that. Notice that the richer Israel got, the faster they forgot the Lord. The more money they had, the more they turned to idols. That's human nature. And notice also that God predicted that all of this would happen And he had promised certain punishments beforehand for when it did. God is saying right here, I'm going to destroy the idolatrous shrines that you built with the money and prosperity that I gave you. That's what he says in verse two. We'll jump back into the text at verse three. For now they will say, we have no king for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. One of the key questions being asked in the book of Hosea is this. What constitutes true repentance? Now remember, back in chapter 6, there was a a flash of pseudo-repentance. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. 
But it didn't last. It was, it was like a mist that burns away with the mid-morning sun. And it wasn't deep enough. They didn't really understand the reality of their sin. And so they didn't really appreciate the depth of the process that they would need to go through. They thought it would be quick, right? Two days, I mean, two days, yes, a short time out, but then surely that's false repentance. A failure to embrace the full depth of the process that is required. Here in verse three, we're seeing something very similar. When the attacks and incursions of Assyria begin to decimate their life as a nation, when their shrines are carried off and their king and their armies are defeated, they will consider for a moment that perhaps it does all go back to their abandonment of the Lord. David Allen Hubbard puts it this way, the king is dead, in effect, as helpless as any other prisoner of war. And there is no use saying, long live the new king, because without God's help, he too would be powerless. And God's help is available only to those who fear, reverence, trust, obey him. Israel knows himself to be disqualified to meet this condition, closed quote. So they're very sad about the consequences that they are beginning to experience. But that's as far as it goes. And of course, that's not real repentance either. Mark that. Mark that. One, as you're reading through the book of Hosea, it wouldn't be a bad idea to keep three little notebooks going. In one notebook, you could say, things I'm learning about God. In another little notebook, you could say, things I'm learning about human beings. In another little notebook, you could you could keep notes on what you're learning about the nature of real repentance. Back in chapter 6, what you learned is that failure to understand the depth of your sin and failure to understand the breadth and width and length of the reparation process, the, the rehabilitation process that you're likely to have to go through, basically an inability to understand serious the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of repentance, that indicates that you don't really understand what's going on. That's, that's false repentance. Shallow, brief, cursory, that's false repentance. But Put this in your book too, that when you're only sad because the consequences you're experiencing, that's false repentance too, right? You can keep that notebook going as well. You can fill it out when you get to the end of Hosea, turn to 2 Corinthians 7, read what Paul has to say there. Paul refers to this sort of repentance as worldly grief, which leads to death. Hosea here labels it mere words, and therefore concludes that judgment will spring up like poisonous weeds in the field. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria, as tribute to the great king, Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. What's being described here is the defeat and despoiling of the city and shrine of Bethel. Remember that Assyria went through northern Israel like a buzzsaw, defeating and destroying city after city, sending the people into exile and seizing the spoil for themselves. The treasures of the shrine in Bethel, however, are so glorious that they will be reserved as a tribute to the great king. That's what the prophet is saying. The lesson here is pretty obvious. Trusting in wealth is stupid because when trouble comes, your money cannot help you. All it does is attract the attention and interest of your enemies. Verse 7, 
Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. Again, this oracle of doom is presented via this ongoing agricultural metaphor. Israel is a luxuriant vine who forgot the source of his wealth and prosperity. Therefore, weeds of judgment grew up and consumed him. The king perishes like a dried-up twig, and their apostate religion will disappear under a blanket of thorns and thistles. The whole project will end in disaster. The ruined field will call out for the mountains and the hills to bury it. Verse 9. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Once again, the last three chapters of Judges are referred to here as in some way establishing a pattern for Israel's rebellious behavior. So go and read those chapters. Read Judges 19 to 21. Themes of family breakdown, religious breakdown, sexual perversion, violence, poor leadership, and social collapse dominate. That sinful root keeps flaring up, Hosea says. It has never been dealt with in any kind of definitive way, and that needs to change. A nation like that is in desperate need of judgment. And so now, God says, it will come. Verse 11, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. I mentioned in the last episode that starting in the second half of chapter 9 and carrying on through into chapter 11, we have four metaphors. Uh, We met the luxuriant vine. We met first, of course, the grapes in the wilderness. Here now, we meet the metaphor of Ephraim or Israel as the heifer. Daniel Carroll does a great job of explaining this passage that we've just read. He says the central metaphor of this section is that of Israel as a trained heifer. The nation is likened to a healthy draft animal eager to plow the ground. In this picture, Yahweh is the farmer who yokes Israel and Judah with a goal of sowing a proper relationship with him and its attendant ethical conduct in order to enjoy the benefits of his unfailing love. That investment of righteousness will redound to them for their benefit. Instead, Israel is doing the opposite, devoting itself to rebellion, closed quote. So this is another example of the Bible reminding us that we reap what we sow. Ephraim was raised and trained for sowing righteousness with the intention of his receiving blessing and favor and kindness from Almighty God. 
but instead he has become an expert in apostasy and rebellion. Well, if that's what you're good at, then you will have an abundant harvest in kind. You abandoned me. You went your own way. You trusted in your own wealth and power. And now it's time for you to pay the piper. And that's where the text goes next in verse 13. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Israel thought themselves rich enough and strong enough to abandon God, but they're about to discover just how weak and how vulnerable they truly are. Their false religion and their apostate political system is about to be utterly cut off. At dawn, the prophet says, as in very soon. You are about to discover that if you sow rebellion, you will reap disaster. Israel does not get to walk away from God. We'll pick up the story in chapter 11 in our next episode. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 